If you don't have your Bibles, turn them on and let's talk about Colossians chapter 1 yet again. I would love to have you guys do that. And then not only that, as we prepare to talk about how to advance the gospel, I'm going to have you do something I've been having you guys do the past few weeks, and that's really to get a sense of where we're going in this message. So after you open up Colossians chapter 1, I want you this time to focus on Colossians 1, 15 through chapter 2, verse 5. So I'm going to have you read that, and I'll give you about three minutes to complete that. It's 1028 right now. Take about three minutes to read Colossians 1, 15 through 2, verse 5, and I'll be back, and we'll jump in, into this together. I wonder if someone asked you who the most influential people are in your life, who you would say, or even more than that, who you would say are the most influential people ever, period. Who are the most influential people ever? Take a moment to jot down a couple answers. Throw in in the group chat, who are some of the most influential people ever? Throw it in there. Roy says, Jesus, I've heard of that guy before. I, I feel like you might be right on that. That's one of them. Excellent. Who else? Keep going. Throw out some stuff in the, in the group chat. Who are some of the most influential people ever? You guys, fine. You'll get a bigger birthday present next time. Justin and Jessica Cox. MLK, I've seen that one before. Julie Studebaker, yes, in your life, definitely. My dad. Influential people ever. If you look at some of the top lists, there are some people that you're always going to see. Uh, you're going to see people like uh, Martin Luther, which everybody knows was the leader of the Protestant Reformation, nailing his 95 arguments to the to the door of the Wittenberg, uh, Ryan Cox. <laughs> you might also think about the guy named Moses. Uh, 
He is the writer of the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Bible. And he's also going to be well known because he's the, he's the guy by which God uses to give the Ten Commandments. Elvis, Justina, Evan, Mr. O. I don't understand that. Anyway, you might also think if you're a discerning student, you might also say, what about the prophet Muhammad? Which, by the way, you're not supposed to have a, a, a picture of. But what about the prophet Muhammad? Might, people might say that he's one of the top figures in all of human history. How about this one? Do you know who this guy is? If you do, put it in the group chat. Who is this guy? He's got a really great perm. Excellent. I saw it already. Hold on here. Uh, Newton. Great job, guys. Great job. Isaac Newton. Now, here's an easier one. People would also say, you know, Newton's one of the most influential guys in all of human history. How about this guy here? Um, Albert Einstein, noted for his theory of relativity, among a whole other host of things. Some of you guys already mentioned, this is an easy one, Jesus. Jesus is by far the most influential person in all of human history, so much so that we changed our dating system based upon his birth date. You have before Christ and then you have after Christ. You don't have before Newton or after Newton or before Luther or after Luther. You only have Jesus Christ and then after that, all of human history. Okay, here's one guy that should appear on all of our most influential lists, and that would be the Apostle Paul. Why? Even though Jesus Christ is by far the most influential, a lot of people look to the Apostle Paul as being the one who popularized the idea of Christianity. It's not entirely true, obviously. If you're looking at it from a secular perspective, which a lot of people do, they're going to say that Paul was, was used by God or used in order to popularize Christianity among not only the Jewish people, but the Gentiles. Paul was apostle to the Gentiles, Peter apostle to the Jews. And so you have the spread of Christianity all throughout the uh, the pagan world, the unbelieving world, largely because of the efforts of Paul the Apostle. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at Paul the Apostle and ask ourselves a question, how can we be evangelists like Paul? How can we build Christ's church like Paul? How can we advance the gospel like Paul? Uh, I mean, among most people, he is one of the most effective missionaries, church planters, and disciplers ever. Paul was very successful in his work. And I think this particular text of scripture is going to tell us exactly why. We're going to look at Paul the Apostle, just like if you're studying basketball, you might ask yourself, well, who's the best basketball player that I could study? How did he practice? How did he, what mentality did he have? If you're playing football and you're, you're throwing the ball, you're the quarterback, you might ask yourself, who's the greatest quarterback ever? How can I throw the ball like him? What was his work ethic? What was his, uh, you know, reading? What, what were his habits so I can follow that? In this section, we're going to look at Paul and ask ourselves the same question. How can we adopt Paul's mentality and Paul's model for ministry so that we can have a similar response? Here's the factor. Here's the thing for you to think about. If you're teaching in Awana or you're serving in Awana or if you're a leader in Edge or if you're a small group leader in any ministry, if you deal with people and people are your bread and butter for ministry, this sermon is for you. Because Paul is going to teach you exactly how to think about your work and how to, how to execute that work. If you have any ministry that deals with people, this is going to teach you everything you need to have a fruitful ministry. And not to necessarily say that everything you do is going to be successful. Paul had his fair share of, of not successes. But what he's going to show you is how to approach ministry in God's way, how to approach ministry where Christ is supreme, motivating and moving you toward the intended end. Do you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Do you want to have God give you a pat on the back when you get to heaven? This is what you need. Apart from this, you will have 
Nothing to thank God for, because this is exactly the kind of mentality that Christians adopt in order to see Christ and say, man, this was worth it. I lived for the glory of God, and now I can, I can be thankful that God used me for his purposes. And I can tell you right now, it's not going to be easy. But like all things in Christianity, nothing is easy. Christianity is a gift. Uh, Christ is a gift that is free for us. But after that gift has been given, there is now an expected work and response from that gift. Okay, so let's learn from the Apostle Paul then how we can be uh, advancers of the gospel just like him and build people up for the ministry. How do we win people? How do we mature them? How do we serve them? This is how to disciple people and advance the gospel of Christ in your neighborhoods, in your families, in your communities. You want to see people one to Christ? Take a page out of Paul's playbook. You want to see people mature in Christ? Take a page out of Paul's playbook. You have squirrely students in your edge small group? Take a page out of Paul's playbook. You have people that are rejecting your, your gospel? Take a page out of Paul's playbook. This is it. Let's jump in. Colossians 1, 24 to 29, starting at verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice, I'm happy about this, in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Everyone gets hung up on that, that, lacking, uh, that uh, lacking in Christ's afflictions, but we'll explain that soon. I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which the church, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And in what way should I make the word of God fully known? Here's that, here's that word of God fully known, the mystery, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. He says to them, the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And Paul says about that, about that mission, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Verse 24 gives us really the, the, the framework, the mentality that Paul possessed. It says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. You see that verse there? I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In other words, if you're going to be a good disciple, if you're going to make people mature for Christ, if you want to see people one to Christ, and if you want to see people mature for Christ, you must first adopt the mentality then there's going to be an element of suffering for this. Now, I, I want to focus specifically on that verse there that says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Is there any way in which Paul was suffering in an atoning factor? Is there any way in which Paul is suffering in a way to help save the Colossians? No way. That's not what's happening here. And we know that because scripture tells us it is what? It's finished, right? The, the, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross was everything we needed to be right with God, to be fully, uh, to be fully re uh, reconciled to him and to be made alive together in Christ. His work on the cross was all that we needed to be right with God. So what is lacking here then in Christ's affliction is not something that makes us right with God. What is lacking here, Paul is saying, is that physically Jesus is no longer with us. Jesus cannot be here with you and me. He's, he's physically in heaven at the right hand of God, but he can't be physically here to suffer for our sake. He can't be physically here to suffer for your family or for your parents or for your friends, whoever's unbelievers in your life. He can't be physically here to suffer for the sake of, uh, of showing people what it looks like to be mature in Christ. Paul says, that's where I come in. 
Jesus can't suffer physically, but I can. I can suffer physically so that you can see Christ's work in me for, for you. And so that's what's happening here. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Which is to say this, when it comes to our service to the church, when it comes to our service for unbelievers and believers, there's an element that you need to adopt right now if you want to see fruitfulness in your ministry. You ready for this? Here's the first point. You have to reframe suffering as an indicator of progress. You can't look at suffering as something that is that is a unusual and something that should be avoided. Rather, the way that scripture paints it, suffering is an indicator of going the right direction. It's kind of like a, a, a sign that says, this is the path. It's like in the Mandalorian where he says, this is the way. This is the way for the Christian. If you want to know what it's like to be a, a, a mature believer, living for the glory of God and helping others mature in their faith or find faith for the first place, it means you have to embrace the model and the concept of suffering. Suffering as the uh, idea of progress and not regress. And if this is true at all levels of your life, right? If you want to play football, you're going to have to deal with sore muscles. I remember when I first started playing football, um, everything on my body hurt. I, there was muscles that hurt that I never knew existed. I couldn't lay down without hurting. I couldn't stand up without hurting. I threw up several times. Uh, I mean, just throughout the whole course of my time in football, I, I, I threw up and I, I hurt, which is why I quit football because I didn't want to do that. Uh, but it's not true with football. I mean, if you, take up a, if you take up guitar playing, if you want to play guitar, you're going to have to learn to deal with calluses on your fingers. And at some point, as you play your guitar, it's going to hurt you to play. You're learning the chords, you're doing the chord progressions, you're practicing the scales, you're going to have fingers that hurt and build calluses. Eventually, those fingers won't hurt as much. And in fact, I think these are, these are a picture of Ian's fingers. Just kidding. I don't know whose fingers these are, but there's not any. If you want to run, if you're on track and you really enjoy track, if you start saying, you know what, I think I can run a marathon or an ultra marathon. If you want to run an ultra marathon, you better be ready for some stank, disgusting feet. Ladies, I'm sorry. I know. I know you don't like seeing this, but you got to understand that if you're going to put your feet through the ringer, it's going to cost you something. Or if you want to run a marathon, you're going to have some toenails falling off. You're going to have some blisters on your feet. <laughs> Ashley, look at it. Stop not looking away. You're going to have some blisters on your feet. It's going to cost you something if you want to do something as hard as a marathon. You're welcome. I'll take the picture off the screen now. Let's talk about when it comes to uh, our, our spiritual work ethic. In the same way that these things are going to cost you, no matter how smart and how smart you work, it's going to cost us too to be good missionaries, to be good uh, disciplers, to be good friends to the people that God has given us. This is what it means when it says, uh, when we're thinking about suffering, I rejoice in my suffering because I know it's producing good fruit in you. Young person, leader, discipler, this is the mentality we have to have. It's going to be, it's going to be hard. It doesn't look the same. We don't have stank feet. We don't have blistered fingers or calluses on our hands or whatever. We have empty pockets. We have <laughs> drained hearts. We have, a, you know, we have different ways of suffering, different ways of suffering that still are painful, but produce the same effect that we're looking for, the fruitfulness of righteousness. Let's take a look at this uh, even deeper. Uh, as, it comes to, as it comes to our suffering, you have to realize that this is the right path. Pain is the price of admission. Pain is the price of admission, which is to say that if you're going to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, you have to realize that suffering is going to come along with it. P pain is the price of admission. Romans 8, chapter 16 
uh, Romans chapter eight, verses 16 to 18 says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You want to know that you're a children of God? Here's how you can tell. If we're children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided that, look at verse 17, the middle of that, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, the suffering and the glory come together. There are two things, there are two sides of the same coin. You want to be glorified with Christ? Suffer with Christ. And in this way, suffer for the sake of others. In verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Second Corinthians chapter one, verses three through six, say it this way, blessed be the God and father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, uh, we are being afflicted, but we're, we're being comforted by God at the same time. He continues, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. There you go again. The sufferings and the comfort come together. Uh, the suffering and the glory happen at the same time. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, uh, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. I know that was a really wordy uh, passage. But the idea here is that Paul says, when you suffer, rather, when we suffer as leaders, when when your leader suffers, it's in other words, and meant to be an encouragement to you, because now I can show you what it looks like to endure suffering and hardship for the glory and honor of Christ. It's not just a theory. This is the mentality and the mindset of the Christian believer. In other words, again, the right path is this pain is the price of admission. Pain is the price of admission if you're going to disciple others, if you're going to see others one to Christ, if you're going to, uh, if you're going to find the, the glory that Christ intends to give to you, it's going to cost you something just like calluses, just like sore muscles, just like swamp foot. All those go together. But here's the thing, just like calluses, swamp foot, and everything else, the pain is not for no purpose. There is a redemptive purpose to pain that God intends to use for good. So it's not only the right path, it's the right process because God is always intending to use pain for redemptive purposes, for good, for good things. And that's where you hear say, uh, where Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, for the sake of the body that is, to, that is the church. That is to say that Paul is saying, I'm suffering, but I know it's not for nothing. My suffering is going to be useful for you. And in that way, then I can smile on my suffering. I can, I, can, I can enjoy it because I know it's for God's glory and for your good. Purposeless pain is demoralizing. Uh, we call that torture, right? The uh, Guantanamo Bay where people were tortured and there's all that, you know, all that terrifying stuff around it. Uh, but torture is, you know, there's, there's no end in sight unless you divulge details. Purposeless pain is demoralizing, but purposeful pain, especially when it's noble, is exciting. Purposeful pain is exciting. Just ask a mother who's giving birth to a baby. Uh, A lot of moms really over-exaggerate how painful it is. It wasn't that painful for me, but I can tell that in that pain, (laughs) just kidding, I love you, babe. In that pain, there is purpose at the end of it. So while the inter, intermediate time is excruciating and terrifying, the end of it, you forget it all because you have this wonderful bundle of joy in your hands that makes all the pain worthwhile. Let me tell you this. It's not that different when it comes to serving others, uh, loving them and maturing them in Christ or winning them to Christ. It is painful and costly to the point of exhaustion, to the point of even death sometimes, Paul would say. 
But the idea behind this is that it's, it's doing, producing something that is good. You're suffering in order to serve others. And in fact, first Peter chapter two, verse 21 says for to this, you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Suffering is the way suffering is the way. And again, but as insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, you will also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's first Peter four thirteen. The idea again, suffering and glory work together. And we can know that that's the price of admission and it's going to be used for God's glory and the good of people that we serve. Point number one, again, don't forget this. Reframe suffering as an indication of progress. You're headed the right direction. And you know that because scripture uh, repeatedly tells us this. But it's not suffering of any kind. There's a certain kind of suffering here that Paul has in mind. Let me show you verses, specifically 25 to 27, but let me give you verse 24 just so you have the context here. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which, the church that is, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. In other words, um, God chose me to serve the church. God chose me. I I didn't choose this for myself. This is a stewardship. I am uh, a servant of this organization that God has given me. It's not for my sake. It's for his. And he says, God gave me this stewardship, this management, this uh, authority in the church in order to do what? Uh, And in fact, let me just point it out to you here. In order to do this, he says, to, to make the word of God, oh man, my highlighter didn't work here, to make the word of God fully known. That's the last part of verse 25, to make the word of God fully known. And in this specific sense, he says, I wanted to tell you this, that there's the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let me give you the shorthand here. Paul is saying to the Colossian church, and I have to remember at this time, the Colossian church is suffering under uh, the, the false teaching of these heretics who are saying there's a higher knowledge. There's a secret knowledge that God wants to give you. And it's a mystery. You have to come and join our thing in order to have the secret knowledge revealed and imparted to you. Paul says, no way to them. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. In other words, the mystery that God taught is that there was a time when the church, Israel, didn't know that the future Messiah would not only come and save the Jews, but he would also be the savior of the Gentiles. And not only that, but the the Messiah would indwell his believers, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this is the mystery. A mystery in the Bible is something that wasn't previously known, but now is fully known. And that mystery was revealed to Paul And Paul says, now all of you know, this isn't secret knowledge just for a select group of people. This is for all of you guys who know that this mystery, Christ in you, is for Jew and for Gentile. This is amazing. Christ in all of his glory and honor is for all of us, the entire body of believers, Jew and Gentile alike, male and female, slave and free, barbarian and Scythian, all are one in Christ. That's the mystery that Paul intended to share. There's no secret knowledge here, Paul is saying. He says, my objective is to make the word of God fully known to you, Colossians. And then as you, I had you guys read through chapter two, verse five, because one of the reasons he says that he's because I don't want you to be deceived by plausible arguments. I don't want someone to come and teach you things that are contrary to what I've been teaching you because the whole word of God is fully known to you. There's a protective element to knowing the word of God. So here's the thing. 
When it comes to you teaching like Paul and developing disciples, maturing them, whether it be in Awana or, or Edge or some other ministry, here's the, the critical factor. As a disciple of Christ yourself, your objective when you're teaching other disciples is to be sure that you are teaching the word without compromise. Teach the whole Bible without deviation, without any sense of change, because your objective as a steward, as a manager, is to do what God has told you to do. It's not to change it. It's not to update it. It's not to devalue parts because it's no longer popular. The Bible says hard things, guys. The Bible says that Jesus is the only way to God. That's not popular, and people don't want to hear that right now. People want to say that everyone is accepted by God because, uh, you know, God's a good God. He's nice. He's kind. And so he wants everyone to be happy, which means that any way that you want to go to God is a good way, as long as you're sincere. The Bible also teaches that marriage is between a man and woman. That's not popular either. That's not popular. People don't want to hear that because today's day and age, we want to think and teach differently, contrary to what God's word says. Bible teaches that God created a place called hell where he will punish those who refuse to surrender to him. That's not popular. And yet this is the very word in all of its totality that you are commissioned to share, which has so many implications, doesn't it? It requires, obviously, that you know what the word of God teaches. It requires that you know what scripture is, is all about. It requires that you know the whole of scripture. But this is why one of the reasons I'm, I'm loving the daily DBR chats is because we can do this together. We can walk through scripture as we read it day by day and talk about what we're reading. If you're not joining me on those, you're missing out. I would love to have you there. I would love to have you there. We've got to teach the whole Bible without compromise because, first of all, we have no authority to change the Bible's message. Teach the whole Bible without compromise because we have no authority to change the Bible's message. I'm sorry to say that, although I'm not because God never changes and yet we do. God is the one who has the authority to, to command scripture and to, uh, to, to, to change whatever he wants. But God doesn't change. God has given the scripture once and for all. We can't do things like Thomas Jefferson and say, you know what? I like this part. I don't like that part. We can't do things like Joseph Smith. Where we say, you know what? I think I'm getting a new thing from God. Here's a new message that you know how to hear. Uh, no, we are people who are committed to God's word as it has been delivered. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Which is to say, the word that's been delivered, teach that. That word, uh, the, the two words they're rightly handling, means to cut straight, to cut straight the word of God, orthodox, straight teaching. Don't teach something else. Don't teach something that, sound, that sounds better to the ear. Don't teach things that sound like, oh, it might make my friends like me better. Teach what is there. Rightly handle the word of truth. Young person, if you want to see maturity in the people that you're discipling, if you want to see salvation in the people that you're trying to reach, you've got to have the word of God. The spirit uh, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. It's not apologetic arguments. Apologetic arguments are great. You should have them. But the word of God is the thing that does the damage. The word of God is the thing that converts. Romans 1, 16 and 17, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel, the word of God. We have no authority to change the Bible's message. We ought to teach the whole Bible also because it takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. You can't have a mature Christian who doesn't have a grasp on the entirety of the word of God. Now, this applies to all of us in this Zoom meeting. Leader, student, pastor alike, we are to be students of the whole of scripture. The zesty parts, the gory parts, the glorious parts, all of it together. There can never be a Christian who is mature in Christ who doesn't have a grasp of the whole of scripture. You can't have that. It's impossible. 
recently there was a, uh, I got, I got a text from, from one of you guys and I'll refrain from sharing names cause I don't want to create a, a stir here, but I got a text from somebody who shared with me a, a couple graphics. And, and one of them was this, one of them was this, I, there's a guy who's teaching things like this. Um, False doctrine taught by ministers and pastors are the true weapons of mass deception, he says. This is what Jesus told us to watch out for. Matthew 24, 4, he quotes, uh, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and, and will deceive many. And then he quotes these things. He, he says these things. He says, Oh, have you been told that you are saved by grace? That's false. Just take a look at 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. Have you been told that you are saved by faith alone? False. Look at this verse in Mark 16, 16. Have you been told that uh, once you're saved, you're always saved? False. Have you been told that you don't need to obey the Lord's commandments? False. Have you been told the Lord's holy days are for the Jews? False. Have you been told you don't need to keep the Sabbath day holy? False. And then what's worse, what's worse is that he is quoting scripture to defend his horrendous positions. Here's my fear, young person. We, you and I, and I, and I actually thought about this and my time is running short, so I can't do this. I thought about just going through a couple of these together to show you where he's gone horribly wrong. I wonder if you're a good enough Bible student to be able to read through this yourself and figure that out. Maybe you should screenshot this and take a look because I would rather you struggle here under my tutelage and the tutelage of your leaders than to have someone like this deceive you and make you feel like, oh man, Compass has taught me wrong. The Bible has been misinterpreted to me. I need to understand this better. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And what this guy does here is cherry pick certain verses. We call that proof texting in order to make his point, but his points are horribly, horribly wrong. In fact, he is a false teacher and is exactly the kind of false teacher that scripture warns against. Young person, are you ready? Leader, are you ready? Can you defend the word of God with the word of God? Can you cut straight the Bible? That's what it takes for us to be a whole Christian, a mature Christian. These final few verses give us some parting words. This is Paul's philosophy of ministry. This is Paul's mentality as he approaches every time he does, he does evangelism, he does church planting where he's discipling people. This is Paul's heartbeat. Here's what it is. I love this. I memorize this. You should too. He says this, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, that maturity, that, that presenting people mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Mm, I love that. Paul is saying, man, my focus, my heartbeat is Christ, his honor, his glory, so that I can make people like you and me mature in Christ, to make them glorious to God, to make them uh, blameless uh, like chapter earlier part of chapter one says, my goal is to make us like Christ. Here's a, here's the thing. We're not apostles. Uh, only one of us is a pastor. Here's the, here, here's the, the point I want to give to you guys. If we're going to do this, we need to patiently pursue, pursue maturity together. Whether you're a discipler or a disciple or somewhere in between, all of us are pursuing Christ together. And here's how we do that. If we're going to pursue maturity together and do it patiently, we have to realize that there's several elements of this. First of all, we got to keep Christ central. You pursue, uh, patiently pursue ministry together by keeping Christ central. Uh, we don't preach ourselves, young person. This is not about me. This is not about Pastor Mike. This is not about a certain name or face on the church. 
Paul said, him we proclaim. This is not even about a theological system. It's not about Calvinism or Arminianism. It's not about any of that. It's about Jesus. All theology should point your eyes to Christ and say, what an amazing Savior I have. What an amazing God I serve. Theology is meant to lead to doxology, which is praise, adoration, confession. Um, Patiently pursue ministry together by keeping Christ central. Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. You also ought to maintain your balance. Paul said that there's two elements of his teaching, warning everyone and teaching everyone. One's a negative, one's a positive. That warning comes at that stern, scary, like, hey, uh, negative uh, admonition. The other side of this is a positive teaching. So warning and teaching, there's a balance here. It's easy for us to lose our balance if we're not staying focused in our scriptures and all of scripture. In fact, it's like, a, it's like reading only half of the Bible, reading only the Old Testament without the New Testament. In fact, several epistles are written this way, where the first half of the epistle is written and says, here's what God did for you. And the second half of the epistle says, and now here's what God wants you to do for him. Here's how God wants you to respond to this. If you only read one half, you'd be lopsided. It's like going to the gym and never having leg day. You can't go to the gym and not do leg day. You're going to have chicken legs and no one's going to like you. Just kidding. But you get my point. In the same way, when we approach scripture, if you're only looking at one aspect, you're cherry picking verses, you're only reading the Psalms, you're only reading the Proverbs, or you're only reading what you understand, you're going to have chicken legs, spiritually speaking. You don't want chicken legs. Maintain your balance. Warning and teaching. All of the scripture is valuable. And then not only that, but we pursue the impossibly possible. God has said to us uh, through the, 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 the pen of the Apostle Paul in verse In Philippians chapter two, verses 12 and 13, it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's impossible. It's impossible for us to be spiritually, to be spiritually conformed to the image of Christ unless God was working in us. And Paul says, I labor, I do this so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In other words, what was impossible as an unbeliever is now possible as believers in Christ. Praise God for that. Pursue the impossibly possible together. Last, you got to put some blood, sweat, and tears in this. Patiently pursuing ministry together means there is bleeding, there is sweating, there is crying. That's what Paul's verse 29 is all about. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul was sweating. Paul was bleeding. Paul was crying. And yet he attributes that to Christ. He says, Christ is working in and through me as I, as I bleed, sweat, and cry for these churches. That has got to characterize us. If you want to see growth in the disciples that you take through partners, if you want to see uh, young edgers get saved and be sanctified, there's got to be some blood, sweat, and tears there, young person. Leaders, we can't get discouraged when it's hard. Jesus promised this is the way. Blood, sweat, and tears. And Paul gives us his ministry playbook. Him we proclaim, warning and teaching, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Mm. Excited about that, guys. Okay, let me now close with this. I love hot Cheetos. In fact, in high school, one of the things that I used to eat all the time during snack is hot Cheetos and cream cheese. Give, give me a thumbs up if you're into that at all. No, no, anybody? Yes. All the Hispanics said thumbs up. Great. So hot Cheetos and cream cheese. Now here's what you may not know. Hot Cheetos is an invention by a guy by the name of Richard Mon- Montañez. I think is how you say that. Mon- Mon- Montañez. 
He dropped out of high school because high school was too hard. English is a second language. He's a son of immigrant parents. And not only that, not only that, he worked as a janitor at Frito-Lay factory. So he's a janitor at Frito-Lay factory. CEO gives this rousing message about how to, you know, take ownership of the company and do great things for Frito-Lay. Richard takes that seriously. He finds a batch of, uh, of hot Cheetos that weren't finished. He takes them home, not stealing. He takes them home and then he says, you know what hot Cheetos need? They need some Mexican flair. And so then he, inspired by the elote, seriously, inspired by the elote, which if you don't know what an elote is, it's corn on the cob with mayonnaise, Parmesan, hot pepper, and some, some I can't believe it's not butter. It's amazing. Trust me. Inspired by elote, he seasons the Cheeto like an elote. And then he directly calls up the CEO and says, I have something for you you are going to love. CEO says, okay, since you've got the guts to call the CEO of Frito-Lay, I'll make an appointment for you. So he goes to the CEO of Frito-Lay and pitches hot Cheetos. The, the, the CEO loves it, loves it. Uh, fast forward several years. He's now the executive VP of multicultural, I think, uh, marketing is how they phrase it. This guy is now worth $14 million. He went from rags to riches. And, and if you want to know the, the reason for his success, besides the fact that he has excellent taste, he said this. Um, he said, upon, uh, Mont, Mont, Montañez's grand, <laughs> Richard's grandfather said something to him that he says made him successful. His grandfather said, when you mop that floor, make sure that it shines. And when people see it, they know that a Montanez mopped it. In other words, kind of pride. Like if you're going to work, work hard. Give a sense of pride for the work that you do, even as a janitor. So, says Montanez, I took that challenge every day. He says, everything I do is about my last name. Christian, everything you do is about a name as well. But it's not Montanez. It's not Gomez. It's not anything. It's not Smith. It's not Brody, it's not Bedrovic, it's not Soto, not Daniel, not Jolly, not Denser, not Sarawine. It's Jesus. Jesus Christ is the name that we proclaim. Now, I can't promise you that if you suffer for the name of Christ, you're going to become a millionaire for having invented hot Cheetos. But I can tell you, if you're willing to suffer for the name of Christ, you're going to have riches far beyond what this hot Cheeto making millionaire has warranted, has earned because the riches and the glory that Christ promised for those who suffer with him are the glories forevermore. Why? Because Christ is supreme. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the privilege of being sons and daughters for those who are Christian. I pray, God, you would help motivate us to be willing to suffer with and for Christ, to see people one to salvation, not for millions of dollars, not for a tasty treat, but for souls, eternal souls who need to, uh, who need to be uh, reconciled to you. I pray, God, help us to do that. Help us to be willing to pay the price of suffering, to see people one and matured in Christ. Lord, don't let us be lazy. Don't let us get discouraged. Let us keep our eyes on the prize that you might receive the maximal amount of glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining me, everybody. You are dismissed. Have a great afternoon, and I'll see you hopefully tomorrow, 11 a.m. for our DBR chat. See you then. Music.